am Hannah Smay. And I'm Haley Robinson. And this is the Wild Idaho Podcast, coming to you from the Idaho Conservation League. The Idaho Conservation League is Idaho's leading voice for conservation, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the lands you love. Each month, we'll be exploring a new topic or current event that impacts the environment in Idaho. Join us to learn about the work we're doing and how you can get involved. Thanks for listening. Hey, Haley. Hi, Hannah. Where in the world have you seen the best night sky? I think the for me, the time that sticks out is being in the Boulder White Clouds on a backpacking trip. Um, and I was with a couple of people who do were doing a volunteer project of measuring the darkness of the night sky. And they had a cool app on their phone. And I just remember standing out in this field and looking up at the stars. And they were talking about the dark sky app that they were using that was really cool. Um, and out there in the mountains, it's just, there's, there was not even a speck of light and it was so cool to be able to look up and see that many stars. What about you? Yeah, I think what stands out to me is also a moment in central Idaho. Um, it was when I was in high school, I went on a yurt trip out in the, I guess it's the Smoky Mountains. Is that what it is? I think it's the Smokies. I'm not as good on, on all the geography, but the Smoky Mountains was a yurt trip in the middle of winter. And I remember going out to like go to the bathroom or something or just like get some snow out of the yurt and looking up and just like almost falling over with how many stars there were. I think there was something about like obviously being in the mountains and being far away from any light source, but something about being there in the winter it was so quiet and and it was it was really neat and memorable. Yeah, I think we forget sometimes because even in Boise, Boise has the light pollution, of course, but you can still see some of the stars. But living in a city for so long, every time I get out, I'm always, yeah, literally starstruck by how much you can see once you get away from the city a little bit. Well, listeners, today our episode is about dark skies in Idaho. We have a great interview with Matt Benjamin, an astronomer and astrophysicist who is a member of ICL's board of directors and was a pivotal voice in securing the designation of the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve. Yeah, it's really exciting that um, ICL was also a partner in making that designation happen. Uh, I know our Central Idaho office in particular worked really hard on this project and they were so excited when the International Dark Sky Association designated the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve in December 2017. It's only the 12th dark sky reserve in the world, um, and the Idaho or the International, excuse me, International Dark Sky Association awarded the area gold tier status, which is their highest ranking for the night sky quality. This designation represents almost two decades of planning efforts and policy decisions by city and county leaders, local businesses and organizations such as ICL and public land managers because so much of the area in the dark sky reserve is public land, is, is um, on national forest or wilderness. And so working together, these partners continue to focus on preserving the quality of nighttime environments and reducing the impact of light pollution in the area. Yeah, and my understanding is that the um, objectives of the dark sky reserve include things like preserving and enhancing the natural nighttime experience, um, and improving the quality of life in those areas, highlighting the economic benefits associated with having dark sky compliant lighting um, in surrounding areas to help preserve the, the night sky. So there's energy savings, there's tourism revenue, um, and people hear about Idaho, I think, quite a lot because of the dark sky reserve. Absolutely. Um, I'd say the dark sky reserve also helps us uh, conserve a robust nocturnal ecosystem and supports the needs of wildlife. 
It also enhances local scientific and educational opportunities through astronomy and other natural studies. And like Haley said, it, we are able to promote our dark skies as a unique community asset and part of our local and national heritage, which certainly has drawn tourists and other visitors seeking a dark sky experience to central Idaho. Yeah, this has been a really cool project um, for ICL to be involved in. It's cool to hear about it and keep up to date on it. And it's really cool to experience it. Um, but um, Hannah, I'm so excited to hear and share with our listeners the deep dive that you did um, on the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve and light pollution issues in general um, with Matt. And Matt Benjamin is such a, an amazing resource and a great public speaker. So uh, I'm excited to share this and let's go ahead and play the interview now. Hi, listeners. This is Hannah. I'm here with Matt Benjamin, who is on the Idaho Conservation League board, and he's a big advocate for dark skies. Matt has a degree in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of Colorado Boulder, and Matt was a really big part in establishing the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve, which was designated by the International Dark Sky Association. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? Hope everyone is staying safe, healthy, and maybe perhaps most importantly, sane um, during these crazy times we're in right now. Yeah. Matt, do you want to tell us a little bit about your passion for dark skies and some of your background in astronomy and astrophysics? Sure, I'd be happy to. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this is a great time to be actually enjoying uh, the night skies. Um, is when that spring weather comes. And so it's sort of a, a good timing to sort of have this conversation. So I'd be happy to sort of talk about my experience and also what led me to be interested in dark skies and some maybe hopefully some tips and things on how everyone can enjoy from the comfort of their home or backyard, uh, obviously maintaining proper social distancing um, as we deal with COVID-19. But, but, you know, we don't have to be uh, locked in our house in perpetuity. We can actually enjoy the cosmos um, and all of its grandeur um, as, we, as we continue to move forward. You know, for me, it started um, really when I was actually a really young kid, and I didn't really come to grips with this until I had uh, kind of started my studies in astronomy and astrophysics in college. But my dad had a, a decent telescope, and I grew up in Los Angeles um, on the coast near Santa Monica. It's LA, a lot of lights, um, but near the coast, you kind of, you know, see a few things. And uh, my dad, uh, I remember this was about four or five years old. I remember seeing Jupiter and the moons of Jupiter through his telescope. And, you know, that was a memory that you hold on to, but I think it sort of just manifested because lo and behold, you know, I ended up, you know, pursuing a career in astronomy and astrophysics. So it's funny how those early moments plant seeds and they uh, germinate over time and, and slowly, you know, sometimes fester into a, a career path like that. Um, so I'd say that was really the, the first moment where I knew I had a passion for the cosmos, uh, really going back to what my dad helped instill. But really where the dichotomy came for me was growing up in L.A., but spending most of my summers and a large chunk of my winters up in Ketchum, Idaho. Uh, and that's, that's partly why I think this project was so such a passion project for me, is because it's a place that's always been a home away from home. And you know, you see this massive urban sprawl, you know, 17 million people in the greater LA basin. And, you know, on a good day, you can see like eight stars, you know, so it wasn't this, you know, ability to see the cosmos for, for anything tremendous. But then we'd come up and go camping or backpacking or even just, you know, out in general, uh, we don't even have to go that far to appreciate the darkness up in Idaho. And I saw this difference and I saw that difference year in, year out as we would go back and forth between Los Angeles and, and, and Ketchum. 
And so seeing that was, I think, a powerful thing for me to see the difference of, of, of what light did or didn't do and that you can actually see true darkness. Um, and then I think the other one that I thought was really interesting was the uh, Northridge earthquake in 1994. This was an earthquake that if you lived in LA um, in the 90s, this was like almost a 7.0 earthquake. And uh, it was a huge, huge earthquake. And it happened at like 4.30 a.m. And it shook everyone out of bed. And if you've never been in an earthquake, uh, and, and in fact, the folks of central Idaho just went through a, a big earthquake with the one, um, you know, north of Stanley. So I think you guys actually have some real, real recent uh, experience with it. But growing up in L.A., it was commonplace. And when the earthquake happened, obviously, while it's happening, you get under a table, you get in a doorway, you get safe. When the shaking's done, you tend to get out of your house. And the main reason you leave your house is to go check your water or your gas mains and to make sure that there's no leaks in that capacity, because obviously that would be dangerous. So the earthquake happened at early morning before sunrise. It was pitch black and everyone is, this happened in January. And so everyone's out, out of their house. I mean, all of LA Basin is effectively out of their house. Either some are waiting to go back in, wait for the shaking to be over. But nonetheless, you know, over, you know, almost all of LA had its power cut because of the earthquake. It shut power down. So what was interesting is you could see the, you could see the Milky Way galaxies because all the lights were out. And so it was a really interesting moment to sort of look up and see the cosmos that you'd never seen before. Now, as a kid, I didn't really know a difference, but there were people that had lived their whole lives in LA and had never seen that many stars, let alone the Milky Way. And it wasn't until years later, and, and as you know, reports came out, that the Griffith Observatory um, in Los Angeles in the Hollywood Hills, their phones were ringing off the hooks because people were not knowing what this big cloud in the sky was. And meanwhile, it was the Milky Way. They had just never seen it. And so it was really interesting that, you know, at a flip of a switch, uh, albeit a natural disaster, people got to experience dark skies in a very interesting way. So I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Um, and, and really, you know, that was this thing sort of said. And then my time studying it, I uh, spent 10 years um, as the education director at the Fisk Planetarium at the University of Colorado Boulder. And that helped me really in a process of teaching people about the cosmos. When you're in a planetarium, you get to make it really dark. But when you showed people the difference between light pollution in various cities and what real darkness looks like, you always got the oohs, the ahs, and sometimes four-letter words in a planetarium program. And it was shocking that, you know, for me, I got to, I got to know this well because I studied it. And to realize that in a half-hour program in the planetarium was the first time they got to see constellations. That to me, I go, I see these all the time. I, I see them in Idaho. So it really was a was an interesting thing. And then um, some recent studies came out in the last two years that said 80% of the world's population can't see the Milky Way. 80% can't see the very essence of the galaxy that our solar system resides in. And to me, it really started to hammer home that we don't have a sense of place, right? There's a, there's a feeling of belonging that is necessary when you see where you're from, but when you can't see where you are, in relation to other things, it, it becomes rather lonely. Um, and so there was sort of the emotional side of really understanding how people have lost connection um, in a serious manner. And so those were sort of the things that really drew me into not just loving astronomy and astrophysics, but why dark skies are so important. And it isn't just a cultural thing. There's biophysical and environmental consequences to um, unchecked light pollution. Uh, we see this with um, uh, sea turtles in the Florida coast in the Bahamas. Uh, they will tend to look for the moonlight glistening off the ocean as their sense of the direction to go to sea. But when they see light inland, they tend to go inland. And they were in those new um, uh, 
um, uh, turtles, as baby turtles end up going the wrong direction and dying. And uh, migratory patterns of birds get messed up because of light pollution. Blue colored lights actually directly impact human sleep patterns. Um, and so there's a lot of things that have been studied pretty directly that say that light pollution isn't just you know, a, a pet project of astronomers who just want to see the stars. No, there's, there's actual impacts on the environment, on, on, on our own bodies uh, that we need to pay attention to. So a lot of those things all really led to, to why I've sort of, you know, become a champion for dark skies, not just in uh, Idaho, but certainly around and here in the front range of Colorado as well. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense because I've learned how life on earth has not evolved with, with light pollution and the way that we live with it today, right? Like we, our cultures and our bodies, like you said, evolved with seeing the night sky every night. It's really stark and it makes sense that it has a lot of these effects, but there are still places where we can see the night sky. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve and how you got involved with that process and what makes that designation unique? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is, uh, I mean, I sort of told the story a little bit about how it got started. Um, and I'll refer to the Steves, as I call them, uh, both Steve Polly and, and, and Steve Batai, who I would say are the sort of the brain trust and, and the ignition for this project and uh, myself and others really just sort of rode that passion and, and helped fill in some gaps to, to make it a reality. But um, I'd really give most of the credit to Steve Polly and, and Steve Batai for their sort of tireless effort and boots on the ground work that, and really setting the stage long before we really got serious about this in 2014. Um, and so that, that, that was really what allowed this to be a success. But you know, what is most striking is is to just maybe for, for the listeners out there to just Google light pollution and look for a light pollution map or just Google light pollution map of the United States or the world. And there's a lot of different maps from various different satellites that have been put together. But when you look at the United States light pollution and you start on the eastern seaboard, you realize that there's effectively nowhere east of the Mississippi River that has any form of true darkness. And it's sort of scary when you see the map of the light pollution, you're like, oh my gosh. And then you move west and there's more and more pockets. And then you get into the Rocky Mountain West and you go, okay, these are the last sort of bastions, the last repositories of, of, of darkness. And, and the reason for that is it's urban sprawl. It's the densities of cities. And when you get into the Rocky Mountains, it's obviously harder to have big cities interspersed among these tiny valleys and mountains. And, and so that geographic uh, uh, opportunity means that there's a little bit, there's, there's more places for dark sky pockets to, to exist. But what happens is, is, you know, dark skies is not like a boundary on a map. It, it's not limited to a city limit or a county or a state boundary or a national park boundary for that matter. Light pollution uh, is, is affected for 100 or 150 miles away from the source of the light. And so when you start to realize that, you realize that are there, how many isolated places are over 200 miles from any major city? And you go, there aren't that many. And so it really got us looking that this is a diminishing resource and a rapidly diminishing resource um, with regards to urban sprawl. And, and certainly 
we, we saw happen in the Front Range of Colorado was a wonderful lesson learned. We've seen the Front Range of Colorado explode in population over the last 20 years. And places just, you know, 100 miles inland or inland, like into the mountains near the past the Continental Divide used to be extremely dark. And they're not anymore uh, because of the urban sprawl. And so you took Idaho and you go, you know, if we don't start to protect something now, we might lose the opportunity. It's kind of, you know, putting the cat back in the bag. It's hard to do that. And once the lights are present, it's hard to get rid of them. Um, So if we start early and protect the few pockets that are left, we have a better opportunity to limit the impact that lights have around uh, those dark places. And, And that was really the main catalyst for pursuing the establishment of the dark sky reserve. And what makes it sort of different is the word reserve. Um, There's a lot of different dark sky designations. There's dark sky parks, dark sky towns, dark sky cities, dark sky preserves with a P, and then there's the sort of highest level of protection or highest recognition of darkness is really the other way to say it, which is a dark sky reserve. And then there's, you know, uh, gold and silver and bronze tier levels of that. And it's all based on your measured darkness. It's very objective in that sense. There's not much subjectivity or it feels dark or it's in a place near a town. No, it's you got to go out for a year and you got to measure the darkness throughout that year. And those numbers dictate what what level you can apply for. And for us in Central Idaho, we were able to go after a gold tier, the highest level of darkness, or I should say, yeah, highest level of darkness or lowest level of light pollution. Um, and it's really the largest continuous, contiguous area uh, effectively in the United States. There might be a few other pockets, other places that, that would rival it, but they haven't you know, gone for any dedication, designation. But we're talking 906,000 acres uh, of, of area in central Idaho sandwiched between the Sawtooth National Wilderness and the Boulder White Cloud National Wilderness. And using those national wilderness areas and their existing um, uh, restrictions on development um, and stuff was a perfect place to do this dark sky reserve. And so all those ingredients made this just perfect for an application and, and a lot of measurements and work and community outreach with the Forest Service and business partners and uh, multiple counties and cities. And so it took a lot of time to to build that up. But, you know, it just seemed perfect in that environment to to go about making uh, or at least applying for a dark sky reserve. And we're fortunate enough to have one. And, and now we get to uh, protect it, but also leverage it as a mechanism for people to connect, connect to the cosmos. Um, and it really goes back to a question sort of in the beginning, you know, well, why are dark, dark skies important? Sometimes you don't know how important something is until you protect it. And then you realize how special it is. Um, And I think the Dark Sky Reserve is sort of emblematic of that. Um, You know, we don't realize how special Yellowstone is, but we do because it's protected at the national park. And we understand how unique that environment is compared to other places in the world. And and I think that's sort of the same thing that we feel with, with the Dark Sky Reserve in Central Idaho. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that you drew the connection. Like once you make the designation, then that just drives home how special it is and has the potential to reach many more people and communicate to them and connect with them on how unique, how special and how incredible the landscape is, the night, the night landscape of central Idaho. And I think another piece of what you were saying about the national wilderness areas is that to the north of the dark sky reserve is the largest wilderness area in the lower 48, the Frank church river of no return wilderness, 
which is absolutely massive. And so that is another swath of dark darkness on the map that has no development, you know, very, very limited development for a huge area. And so like you were saying that it's hundreds of miles from the source of light. I think that the, the northern boundary of the dark sky reserve really helps keep it dark in that area. And so it is a really unique landscape. It is. And, you know, we do have to, we do have to worry. It, it is not without having to work hard to maintain it and, and continue to protect it. You know, there's no, no big secret. Boise is one of the most popular places to live right now. Um, and for great reason. Boise is a great city and it is on the doorstep of, of, of great wilderness and, and connection to some of the iconic places in Idaho. Um, and it's sort of that, you know, big city, small city feel at the same time. And, and there's a lot of wonderful, you know, positives for why Boise is as popular as it is. But there is a, there's a collateral impact that that creates, which is more people moving there, more development, more housing on the outskirts of Boise. And especially when you look at some of the development on the northern side of, of Boise, that, that starts to push the light pollution envelope into the dark sky reserve. And so we have to be mindful that, you know, people in Boise might go, well, that reserve is like an hour and a half away. Like I got to go past Loman on 20 to get out. That seems so far. Like how do the decisions we make in Boise impact a place 80 miles away? And, and, and we start to have that conversation. If it weren't a dark sky reserve, we wouldn't be able to really have a formative conversation with, leadership in Boise, be it city council or the county commissioners, of, of can we do responsible lighting in those newly developed areas that lessen that impact on the reserve to the north and northeast? And so it's really important that once you designate it, you can put a flag on a map and say, yeah, that, that thing we need to have a conversation about uh, because we have to protect that. And it takes all Idahoans um, really being interested in valuing that asset of of the state. I mean, it's one of the first things that Governor Little uh, pointed out in, um, in in his state of the state, I believe, or one of the uh, Idaho tourism magazines was the Dark Sky Reserve. You know, and you kind of go, yeah, it's that important. You know, even even the you know, Governor Little uh, sees that it's it's vitally important uh, that we protect it and honor it and cherish it and enjoy it at the same time. And and so that's where, you know, we got to have those conversations and, and, and hope that we can work collaboratively to maintain the quality of the dark skies of the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve. But it's also a, pla a, a, a blueprint for other communities around the country to think about it. And what's been interesting is the amount of phone calls. I know Steve Batai, who's the mayor of Stanley, uh, Steve Polly and myself have gotten from other communities around the country. How did you do that? We'd love to know what's your model? Like, how'd that work? And so it's really great that people are like, well, maybe we can do that too. And we love to export the, the model. Although I tend to argue that what we had to do in central Idaho was far more complicated than likely what others would have to do. And so um, in many ways, you know, they shouldn't be uh, steered away by how complex ours was. And ours was just complex because the number of entities uh, that, that were involved in it, uh, quite frankly, I think it's what, five, four cities five counties and the forest service and BLM. And you go, yeah, it's a lot of people to get on. That's a lot of people to get on the same page. It's a lot of bureaucracy to work through. And I don't know many places around the country that have that, that for a dark sky environment would have that many entities 
um, you know, that you need to navigate. So you know, it's just, it's, it's interesting how, how those things play out, but, but fascinating from a legacy perspective and, and how we use it to, to leverage appropriate change. Um, and it's probably worth, you know, maybe talking about what some of those changes are um, because they're not, they're not hard on people. They don't impact people's freedom. They don't impact, in fact, it's cheaper to move to better light pollution uh, lighting than it is to stay with the status quo. So quite honestly, it's good for your wallet, good for the environment. Um, and when it's when, when those two things align, it's, it's win-win for everybody. Yeah, it really is win-win for everybody. Um, and I, I actually would love to hear um, some of the ways that people, business owners or just homeowners can adjust, can adapt their lighting, can can start to move towards protecting the dark sky just with the decisions they could make individually, even though to have some a collective vision and a collective uh, protection model like the Dark Sky Reserve, it is a huge coordination effort between many different um, decision makers. So what kinds of things can folks do to protect the, the skies just in their own, their own space? Well, so one of the things, you know, again, just to sort of focus on, so, if, you know, in central Idaho, you know, there's not a lot of density. You know, you've got a property owner or a rancher and, you know, and, and you know, 100 acres and then a next rancher property owner, 100 acres. And, um, you know, it's not until you're maybe in Ketchum or Sun Valley that obviously there's some density. And so you're, you know, so different places have a different sort of recipe. But really, at the end of the day, you know, what's important to realize is, you know, there's really no light police. There's no, no one going around really issuing tickets or arresting people for light pollution. So that it's it's. It's educating people so that they can have a neighborly conversation. And I think first and foremost is just cover your light. I think that's the most impactful thing people can do is if you have just a light bulb screwed into a, an outdoor socket and it lights up your whole yard and the whole sky, that, that's wasteful and that's like the worst offender. Whereas you literally just screw on a shielded sconce, leave the same light bulb and you've cut half your light pollution out of the equation, right? I mean, it's just, that's the most impactful thing is if, if a light bulb is, is pushing even horizontally or out into the air, cover it. Um, and covering them is so inexpensive. Like that's like the most easy thing you can do. Second to that is the type of light bulbs you use. Um, and the reason for that is depending on the color of the light, or we say light temperature, that light actually scatters off the atmosphere differently than other light with other types of, of colors or temperatures. And so what we want is to avoid the bluish white light, the super bright ones where on a label it says like daytime or, or blue light. Those, those you want to stay away from because those are the worst um, for impacting light pollution. You go to a much more uh, cooler, yellower light, you can have the same wattage light, but have a tremendous reduction in your light footprint, so to speak, like how much light pollution you emit. Um, and they cost the same as the blue ones. They just are not that bluish white. And it's not just, um, what's important about those is, and, and there's a lot of studies that have shown this, is a lot of people put those bluish white lights actually in their house um, or on like their porch lights that they leave on at night. And it turns out those blue colored lights are what directly impact your sleep pattern. And what's so interesting is your, the human body naturally has a sleep cycle that is governed by the day to night cycle. And um, 
and, and what's interesting is there are certain um, hormones and things that are that get created in your body or get suppressed based on when your body sees the daylight hours or the darkness hours. And when the darkness hours come, you start to produce chemicals in your body that prepare you for sleep. But if you have artificial lights that are still blue and white in color, your body's being tricked into thinking it's still daytime. And then your body's not producing those chemicals and those hormones to prepare your body for sleep. And so it actually impacts your sleep cycles, which as we all know, if you're not getting good, good sleep, it impacts your health. And so it's interesting that the choices you make for interior and exterior lighting actually having health issues, health consequences uh, to people. And so those are the really the right off the bat, cover your lights and pick a different light bulb. And more importantly, go to an LED light bulb um, that is a coolant temperature because that's where you get the double bang, right? You go to an LED, you save money in your wallet because they, they don't cost as much to run. And then you're helping the environment at the same time. And that's just win-win for all of us. And that stuff is very inexpensive. You know, 20 years ago, yeah, LED bulbs were really expensive. Today, they're very cheap. They're everywhere. Um, and it's easy to make that. And plus, you buy one LED light bulb, you're pretty much set for 20 years. You don't have to replace it. Um, so a lot of positive benefits for how you can make those changes. And, and that's what you can do for yourself. Uh, and outside of that is, you know, it is be neighborly. You know, someone who has this bright burning porch light in their backyard that serves no purpose, have that conversation. And one of the things we learned in our in the Dark Sky Reserve when we were talking about light pollution to communities was we first was talking about, you know, light pollution and, and using in light footprint and technical terms. And it wasn't resonating really well. And quickly we realized that we needed to talk about light trespass. We needed to sort of change our terminology. And once we started talking about light trespass, no pun intended, the light bulb went off in, in, in many ways for people because they understood that when we related someone's barn light or someone's bright porch light shining onto someone's house or shining into someone's bedroom and they'd have to close the blinds at night because of the, oh, their neighbor's light, we realized how is that any different than your neighbor's trash can knocking over and blowing trash into your yard? How is that any different? What would you do? You'd probably ask your neighbor to clean it up and take more care and, and make sure their trash doesn't end up in your yard. How is their light any different? Their light is trespassing onto your property, onto your space, and invading your personal freedom. So why can't we hold people accountable to each other about their light footprint and light trespassing? And as soon as we started to change the conversation in that way, it really got people understanding like, yeah, I, I don't want your light on my house. And then that person, yeah, well, I don't want your light on my house. And you go, well, then you should cover your lights and end the conversation. They go, yeah, let's do that, right? So it was a really interesting evolution in how we started to talk about light pollution um, in the form of light trespass. And, um, and it got people to be more self-policing and be more neighborly in the conversations that they were having. Yeah, I think that is a really helpful message. And I also think that it shows that there are lots of lessons that we can take from um, your experience of fighting for dark skies. And so we, you know, have this conception of what, what light pollution is and how we can suppress it and address it. And what lessons can we take from dark skies in the central Idaho dark sky reserve about being neighborly, about collaboration, about individual action, right? And, and the relationship between individual action and collective action. And how can we take those lessons and now apply them um, and bring them into other conversations about other kinds of pollution and other conservation issues. I completely agree. Uh, I, I think 
there's a lot to be learned from how we treat light pollution, how we have in the past, and it's a model going forward. And, you know, I, I think if there's, you know, a couple things I would just sort of maybe challenge listeners to is, you know, while you're at home, while your outdoor activities are, are limited, you know, just get outside at night and, and just look up at the stars, look up at the cosmos, connect ourselves with, you know, the cultures that came before, um, our sense of place. Um, there's a lot of introspection that occurs in a, in a, a crisis like this. And, and one that should not be forgotten is our sense of place, not just in the world, but our sense of place in the cosmos. And um, it's, it's important to take those, those moments. And, you know, what are helpful to learn, grab a couple apps on your phone. If you don't know the sky, you know, Skywatch or Star Guide. I mean, there's, there's like these easy apps that are free or like one or two bucks. And you just point it at the sky and it shows you what's in that direction while you're looking. And it's a great, easy way to get familiar with what's up there. Um, and what events are coming up, uh, you know, and there's always cool things happening in the cosmos. And if it allows us to take that breath and take a pause to appreciate and slow down, um, if we've learned anything during this pandemic is that slowing down is, is sometimes really helpful and beneficial for our mental health, physical health, and, and, and how we sustain ourselves as a society. And, um, you know, Spare some of that time to check out the cosmos, see the phase of the moon, see where the planets are before sunrise. So there's a lot of cool things. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a good chance to do that um, and, and just look up. Look up. I love that. And so you already shared with us a few apps and, and ideas for how folks can stargaze from home, how they can go into their backyards or their local parks or just look out their window on their porch. And I was wondering if you had any other suggestions, any other apps or activities or tools that folks can use right now to connect to the cosmos. And you already shared a few, but I, if there's other ones that you um, would like to share with our listeners, I think we'd love to hear it. Absolutely not. It's, it's, a, it's a great, great question. And there's a lot of different things. And, you know, the apps certainly help with gaining a familiarity of constellations or what objects are in the sky, not just tonight, but you can easily look, you know, a month in advance or, or something like that and see what's coming. Um, but the other thing is using your camera. A lot of people have a digital camera and not, a, not and I'm not talking about the camera on their phone. You know, you can actually take pictures of the stars with some basic camera equipment that most people probably probably already have um, at their house. And even if you don't have a tripod, you can set your camera on a table um, and, and lean it up with a book and point it at the cosmos or something. But what you can do is start to take fun pictures of the night sky. And I think that's a fun way to experience it because the human eye only sees so much. And it's amazing how much more of the cosmos reveals itself when you take a 30-second picture of the sky with your camera. There's so many more stars. There's so much more interesting things to see. And I think it's just a, a wonderful way to get a window in. It's a wonderful little hobby to get into, to take pictures of the stars. And it's, it's such a wonderful sense of dynamics that the sky is moving and we're a part of this moving object. And so there's a fun little ways that I think you can you can play with your camera. Again, go out on back deck, shoot the camera for a few, take a picture of a couple things. You know, if you've got a bigger camera or something, you know, the, 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 the Pleiades of the Seven Sisters are in the Western sky, the group of cluster of stars, take a picture of them. They're fun to take pictures of. And, you know, the other thing to do is with kids. One of the, my favorite activities with kids is to have them draw the phases of the moon. 
and try to go out every night and have them draw it. And what they realize over the course of a month, if you can go out every couple of nights, is that the moon really changes shape pretty rapidly from day to day, week to week. Um, and then they get the cycle going. And so those are fun little um, you know, activities. It's a way to get art going with kids, especially for those of us that are parents that are dealing with kids um, at home and you're trying to find activities. That's a fun way to do it, um, right? Is to sort of trace the moon um, in the sky, have them draw it out. Um, so those are fun little activities right there. And, all fantastic suggestions. I also would add that I have done some stargazing with just binoculars and that like helps your eyes seem way more too. And you can see things up close and you don't need a fancy telescope or any kind of telescope. If you have a pair of binoculars that can help you get a glimpse at the amazing night sky. So that's another good tool that a lot of people, a lot of folks in Idaho, a lot of conservationists and bird watchers already have that can be repurposed for, for night sky uh, exploration. Great point. Glad you brought that up. Yeah. Binoculars are, are a great way to help magnify and get a closer view of things. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Anna. Yeah, of course. And I just want to say thank you so much to Matt uh, for coming on the uh, Wild Idaho podcast and sharing your passion, your knowledge, uh, your experience and your advice for folks right now um, who are interested in dark skies. I just really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us, Matt. My pleasure, Hannah. You know, I I strongly support everything that Idaho Conservation League is doing. Um, And, you know, we've got a lot of great projects that we're doing, dark skies certainly having been one of them. Um, And I just look forward to seeing and hearing people's enjoyment of dark skies, be it at the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve or, or other places. It is Uh, I just hope more people get out and experience it, Um, especially take your kids. You'd be surprised how long lasting um, and impactful those experiences are for for kids. So I hope parents listening um, really understand that that, uh, pay it forward. Give your kids that experience because they'll remember it for a lifetime. I would say that's definitely true. When I I grew up in Idaho and I remember really clearly and just really fondly going out to Bruno Sand Dunes and going to the public observatory there and sitting in on their dark sky um, astronomy presentations and looking through big fancy telescope for the first time and seeing just, I don't, I don't remember exactly what objects in the sky I was seeing, but they were mind blowing and it was really, really special. Idaho is such a special place, and such a unique place that those experiences are right down the road. I think everybody becomes a kid looking up at the, at the stars. Matt is such a great teacher and he's so passionate about dark skies. Um, I've had times with him at different, you know, ICL board and staff gatherings where I've talked to him and just gotten lost in these conversations about space and dark holes and planets and dark holes, black holes and planets. And he's so knowledgeable and exciting to talk to. I really like Matt. Um, And it's cool that dark skies connect so much together here at ICL. I mean, um, dark skies represent healthy communities, Idaho's heritage, um, wildlife preservation, public lands, and just finding awe in the environment close to home. It's just so inspiring to look out at night from my window or my backyard and see like the universe above my head. Listeners, we'll be sure to link to some of our resources, some other resources for um, at-home stargazing in the description of this episode. Um, we'd love to hear from you on your favorite place to view the stars. And um, if you have any experiences in Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve or um, any fun experiences and what the dark skies mean to you, please reach out and share those with us. And as always, if you're enjoying listening to this podcast, 
um, please share it with your friends and family. We'd love to um, be able to reach more people and continue to share our enthusiasm for um, protecting Idaho's environment. Thanks so much, listeners, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Wild Idaho.